You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 299 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. Before we start this episode, have you remembered to head over to YouTube and subscribe to my YouTube channel? Just search for Natural Born Alchemist channel on YouTube and you will find it. And uh, I'll also appreciate if you like the videos and leave a comment here and there. It helps with the algorithm. You can also leave a nice review of the podcast on iTunes, that always helps. Or you can become a Patreon. All these links can be found in the program notes or on naturalbornalchemist.com. Keep in mind that my podcast is ad-free, so anything you can do to support is appreciated. Now in this episode, my guest is Alicia Bay Laurel. She is an author, visual artist, singer-songwriter, guitarist and storyteller. Together with composer Ramon Sender Barayon, she co-authored a compendium of suggestions for creating and growing your own religion called Being of the Sun. Apart from the book, we will talk about the 60s and that legendary summer of love. And we'll also talk a great deal about music. Here's Alicia Baylor. So thanks for being on the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. I'm happy to be here. I'm honored to be part of your podcast series. So can you tell the listeners a bit about who you are and what you do? I am an artist, visual artist. I'm also a writer. And I'm also a singer, songwriter, guitar player, storyteller. And I've authored a number of books all of which I also illustrated, and most of which I designed. Um, I've also made eight recordings of my original songs and some songs that were historic and I liked. Um, I recently released a movie, uh, which is a, of a performance that I did five years ago um, telling the story about how my first book, Living on the Earth, came into existence. And it's kind of like a, a crazy hippie miracle story. And um, so that is now available on Vimeo. And also this month was the release of the first new English edition of Being of the Sun since 1973, its original edition, although it's been in print in Japanese for quite a few years um, and still is. And there is a, a project to get it published in Spanish as well. Um, and uh, Living on the Earth came out in its 50th anniversary 50th anniversary edition, 5th English language edition last February. Um, and it's also out in Spanish and uh, has been available in Japanese continuously since 1972. Um, and right now I am lettering the first French edition of it. So my work has legs. 
it it travels. So this book, uh, Being of the Sun, what, what's it about? It's a book about how we don't have to follow other people to have a spiritual life. Um, most people just subscribe to a religion that their parents perhaps introduced them to. Um, but what Ramon, my co-author, and I realized was that actually even people who join religions have their own personal uh, set of beliefs and ways to to remind themselves that they are one with the universe. And so what we were suggesting is that completely uh, create your own personal religion and don't pass it on to anyone else. And and then we gave um, examples of things that we found inspiring in our two personal religions. Um, what we had in common was that we both found uh, the elements and the cycles of nature to be inspiring, and that we both found the vibrations of music to be inspiring. So Ramon was a, a composer, uh, actually a person who uh, has a master's degree in music and uh, was one of the founders of the San Francisco Tape Music Center and really has been uh, a teacher and a performer for a lot of his life. So in this book, he teaches a lot about musical vibrations and um scales and modes, different musical forms. And um, I, on the other hand, am a singer-songwriter that started out playing piano and then moved on to playing guitar. And I've recorded a great many of my original songs. And then we made an album together of the songs that are in our book, which we we made for this book. Um, so um we were both very moved by the experience of being musicians of allowing musical sound to come through our our uh chest cavities as singers and also through our hands as players of instruments and also uh you know we practiced some of the uh, some of the practices that came from the East, we both practiced meditation. We both practiced Hatha yoga. There's some references in the, to those things in this book and on doing sacred chants, especially uh, ancient chants, because those things happen to vibrate with us, but they might not vibrate with others. What's interesting about this book is in its history is that it didn't resonate with the general public in 1973 when it was first published in English. But as time went on, it developed a big following among people that identified as Wiccans, pagans, and Druids. And the book was almost immediately published in Japanese after Living on the Earth came out in 1972, um, 
1974, they published Being of the Sun, and both of these books had a great resonance with Japanese culture because their animistic nature religion of Shinto never was discouraged by the Buddhists that came later, unlike in Europe where Christianity did its utmost to wipe out the pagan and druid and Wiccan forms. Um, in Japan, the two continue to coexist, and you'll often find on the grounds of a Buddhist temple uh, a lovely little Shinto shrine. You'll find them all over Japan. And um, many Japanese people will have a Shinto wedding and a Buddhist funeral because both of these forms of connecting to the divine are important in their lives. So Being of the Sun uh, has been a very popular book in Japan for many decades. Whereas in the United States, it went out of print fairly quickly in the 70s, and it's now just coming back. And it's almost as if it, you know, the society needed to catch up in the West uh, with the idea that uh, human beings could find their own way to oneness with the universe, to experiencing that. Um, and so here it is again. And it wasn't even my idea. My, I, I tried to find a publisher for the 50th anniversary edition of Living on the Earth. And my publisher said, hey, what about Being of the Sun? Can we publish that too? And I said, well, yes, of course. So here it is. All my life I've been interested in composing my own little Bibles, uh, if you could call it that. And fictional ones or ones I could follow myself. I don't know what, what that, where that comes from. I guess it's studying sacred texts. I, anything I do, I always want to try it myself. So it's been mainly for, for that reason. But I like what you said about uh, not sharing it. Uh, that's uh, like almost, uh, is it called an oxymoron? Like how you, when usually when you make a, spiritual text it's that's all it's that's its main purpose is to like get followers yeah and and the thing about that is that um it becomes a power relationship between the person that authored the text and the person that reads the text there is a a subtext of you will do what i say you will dress as I tell you to dress. You will eat as I tell you to eat, and so forth. And um, we felt that uh, each individual person is different, and each individual person is going to find their own relationship with the physical world and with the spiritual world, and that we can share these things amongst ourselves but not necessarily have, you know, spiritual leaders. Um, we can have people who, that, we, that we regard as wise, that we might consult uh, when we find ourselves troubled. That's, that's certainly a, uh, a function that an older person will serve in an indigenous community um, to, to offer 
the advantage of their experience with the people who are in the tribe who are younger and might be puzzled by something. Um, but to, to create authority and hierarchy um, is one of the mistakes, I think, of human civilization. Because as soon as there is hierarchy and authority, uh, it tends to concentrate, and then you get wars. <laughs> so we don't want wars. We want people living in harmony with each other. I guess it depends on how you define hierarchy. But isn't it impossible to completely not have it? I mean, the simple fact with age, I mean, an older person is of a higher hierarchy than a younger person just based on experience. Most of the time that's true. But uh, once in a while, a younger person comes along that has an extraordinary innate wisdom or an extraordinary innate ability uh, that his or her elders do not have. And um, I think that people who are born with a certain kind of genius suffer at the hands of their elders because the elders express that they should have authority simply by fact of being older. Um, uh, there needs to be an openness and a humility in people of all ages to each other in order that we might appreciate and understand one another better. So based on the title of the book, well, is it concerning like sun worship? Well, when I started working on the book with Ramon, he very much was into sun worship and still is. In other words, he would feel that by receiving the sun's rays, not directly on his eyeballs because he didn't want to burn them out, but you know that that that, that the sun was a, a conscious being and and full of loving, caring energy, and he felt um, very connected to that. It was important to him to have that kind of a of of a animistic god i think because he was a person that was orphaned during the spanish civil war from his mother and then kind of abandoned by his father after his father brought him and his sister to america so to so to have uh a, a being who was always there and always loving was was kind of like an inner dream for him. And for me, uh, I I also had kind of a traumatic childhood, but it was different. Uh, it didn't include so much bloodshed as much as just uh, my elders not understanding and appreciating who I was and pushing me around a lot. And what I wanted was freedom to make my own decisions about how to live on this planet. So for me, it wasn't so much 
important that I saw the sun as a god or goddess in Japan. The, the sun is the goddess Amaterasu. <laughs> but anyway, I, I, I wanted to have the freedom to find my own way, not necessarily join a religion and not necessarily join uh, the many kinds of hippie cults that were suddenly available when I was young. There were gurus of all kinds, some from the West, some from the East. Um, they all, they had books, they had songs to, you know, were you going to chant Hare Krishna? Uh, I didn't necessarily want to do any of those things, although I experimented with a great many of them because I was curious. Um, and in the end, I found my own way. So that was where these two strains of thought came together in this book. Um, Ramon and I wanted to collaborate on a book, and I always considered him to be a mentor. He was a person that I met when we were living on Wheeler Ranch Commune, and he was the center of a certain kind of music. He had five zithers, that is, auto harps without the the keys, and he would tune them each week in a different pentatonic tuning. So there would be five of these zithers all in the same pentatonic tuning, and he would bring them to the community gatherings, and and anybody who wanted to could play them because you couldn't play them wrong. All the notes were tuned together. And so that was like the most amazing literal harmony of the community that he was able to make. And for him as a composer, it was a way of using non-musicians to make music, which was a kind of a revolutionary act in itself. Um, what I did was I tuned my guitar to whatever uh, pentatonic tuning he was doing that particular week, and I would play along. And both of he was an improviser, so I learned to improvise vocally from playing music with him. Everybody else was playing rock and roll and you know and folk music. I liked folk music. I wasn't much of a rocker, but uh, I didn't really want to join a rock band. I wanted to play what Ramon was playing. And so that was how I became interested in what he was doing and what he had to, to say as a spiritual being. And, and interestingly, he has continued throughout his life, he's now 87, to formulate all of these different ways to uh, higher consciousness. And he has never preached to anyone. He writes stuff down. He's happy to share it with anybody that wants to read it, but he's never played the guru and he's never, you know, considered anybody to be one of his students. He just made all of this an enormous body of uh, ideas. Um, when we started working on the new edition 
of being of the sun, there was a discussion about whether we should incorporate the ideas that he had made during the almost 50 years in between. And we realized it would just be way too many pages. It just needed to be its own work. Um, but on the other hand, during those years, we had each created other works um, that didn't exist in 1973. So I was able to make uh, a, a really complete discography of Ramon's recordings and a bibliography of his books that he wrote, and the same for me. And so that was that was kind of beautiful. And um, the book really sort of depicts us as being in this this very ecstatic love relationship, which we were for a couple of years. And then I wanted to go to Hawaii and focus on Hawaiian style open tune guitar. That was really what I wanted to do. And I also wanted to go to Japan and meet my fans there. And he didn't want to do that either. So we went our own ways. And uh, eventually he married very happily and I became friends with his wife, and we discovered that we were actually cousins. So <laughs> that was kind of an interesting thing. And, and um, I eventually found my life mate as well, with whom I just celebrated our 25th anniversary. And he, like Ramon, is an avant-garde composer, musician, and also, like Ramon, one of the pioneers of the use of the analog synthesizer. Ramon was part of the uh, San Francisco Tape Music Center when they designed the Buchla Box, which was the first synthesizer built on the West Coast. While Joe Gallivan, my partner, was on the East Coast and working with Robert Moog to create the Moog drum because one of Joe's main instruments is drums. So he wanted to have a synthesizer that would be triggered by a drum pad. So the Moog drum is really the grandfather of all of the drum pads that exist today. I always find it interesting or fascinating when you meet people that never, never learned to play an instrument I always think that, that it's a great shame to go through life and not, I don't mean you don't have to ma master an instrument, but just uh, casually play it. Um, or or even people you meet sometimes that there are some people, they're not that common, but there are many people who simply don't even listen to music. Uh, and I always wondered how that can be, that it seems like, if you don't have music in your life, aren't you almost disconnected from the universe? Well, I, I certainly think so, and Ramon certainly thinks so. I mean, that's pretty clear from our book and our lives. Um, I, I think that what has happened to human society, at least in the more industrialized parts of it, is that um, business has taken over the function of providing music to a very large degree. 
um, not only by making recordings and selling them and making certain people stars and, you know, the, the, the whole recording industry thing, which then got sort of uh, re-monetized in a way that didn't benefit musicians through the internet. Um, there's also just that music became a commodity. It became background music in stores, in sales uh, movies, in movies themselves, in television shows. Um, it, it became ubiquitous, uh, electronically produced sound, and um, it became something that you stream on your cell phone uh, and you don't pay for. It, it became so commodified that people stopped even thinking of musicians as being the providers of this good. Um, but there's a whole other aspect of music that I remember because I'm old enough to remember this, which is that there were people that used to play music for fun. My grandmother's generation, um, if you had a hit song, that meant that the publishing company sold a lot of sheet music of your song. And people who had pianos in their front parlors would play your song and their families would gather around the piano and sing your song. And if there were any people in the piano, in the, in the family that played musical instruments, they would play along with the piano. And so that was, you know, in the 19th century and early 20th century, that was a lot of the way that families um, amused themselves besides playing cards. Um, they, they played music together, they sang together, and of course there were church choirs, and, and uh, there were choirs outside of churches too. The, the participation in music was kind of a more common social form than it is now. And that is something that I, I think is not to the good of human society. I think, as you do, that playing instruments and singing and dancing are, are ways to bring joy to your spirit, to allow joy to come through your spirit. I have two small children and I've consciously left musical instruments lying around and uh, we also fortunately ha have a piano that a, a child can never keep their fingers away from a piano because it's it's very easy for a child to make it even a, just pushing one key you can it sounds good you don't have to be able to play it that well to make a, a nice noise whereas a, a guitar for instance for a small child is, is more difficult um, and uh, and now when one of them is five she is actually wanting to and starting to learn to play the piano uh, with, uh, and I'm not forcing it or anything uh, but I think that's good and I wish I had that when I was a child because I had to wait till I was like 12 before I got my hands on musical instruments and uh, I think uh, I don't know how daycares and those places how they are but they should really have more instruments lying around and maybe they don't because 
uh, teachers and parents uh, can't stand the noise it makes. You know, when you don't know how to play it, it makes a lot of noise as well. Yeah. Um, that was one of the things that was so wonderful about Ramon with his tuned zithers was that even little children could, uh, you know, take a, a chopstick or a plectrum and play this thing and be part of the whole musical community that was going on. Um, but like at, at, as you described with your daughter, that's exactly what happened to me. I, I grew up in a house with a piano and as soon as I could stand up on my feet, I put my hands on the keys and I wanted to play that piano and I, begged for piano lessons until I was seven. I finally got them. They said, your feet have to, your legs have to be long enough to reach the pedals. So once they were long enough to reach the pedals, I was allowed to have piano lessons. And nobody had to tell me to practice. I just loved the sound of the instrument and was just enchanted that I was able to put my hands on it and, and a song would come out. And then... Uh, when I was 14, I think, in 1965, no, 65, I was 16. Anyway, it was, it was in my early teens. I first went to a Bob Dylan concert, and he wasn't even famous then. It was uh, a very poorly attended concert in the western part of Los Angeles, but I went with some friends who said, oh, we must support him. He went to the same summer camp that we went to, and so we want to show that we care. So we, we go, and there's this guy, and he's expressing his political feelings, his thoughts, um, while playing the guitar and, and the harmonica. And he wasn't trying to sing pretty. He was singing with a kind of a rough, strong male feeling. And I was very moved by that. And I said, I want to sing about my political feelings too. And the first song that I wrote was about the murder of uh, Schwerner, Cheney, and Johnson, three civil rights workers in Mississippi during the early civil rights movement. Um, it wasn't, you know, a, a great song, but it was exciting to me that I was actually doing what I had intended to set forth doing. And I've been a guitar player ever since. Um, I think that, that uh, little children really love being part of music if, if it can be offered to them. Um, one of the schools that I worked at during my life were, were Waldorf schools, Rudolf Steiner schools. And in those schools, the children are taught to play recorders, wooden, you know, wooden recorders, kind of like little, little um, clarinets. Uh, and every year they get a different recorder, a, a, a larger one. And eventually the children all play these recorders together. And it's very much like medieval music. 
Um, so that's an example of a, of a society really that incorporates music into uh, raising children. I was impressed by that. Yes, and it's important also to not uh, try and make your child become like a concert pianist or something and it becomes a chore, you know. And I, I keep saying to her, because she started doing lessons and that, I keep asking her, you don't have to do it if you don't want to. Like, <laughs> I don't want it to be, I don't want to turn it into something she, when she's old, she thinks, oh, I wish I wasn't forced to do that. So, uh Because I've seen uh, other parents, uh, they need, need need their child to excel, you know. And I've never really liked perfection. Uh, I always uh, was drawn more to music that was imperfect. I guess Bob Dylan is, is like that, imperfect. Like, it's not perfect pitch. Uh, it doesn't matter if a chord is not pressed exactly as it should be, maybe. And that's why I find a lot of modern music a bit boring because it's 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 too perfect. There's no uh, no spirit behind it. You know, you, you might as well be a robot playing it. In some cases, it is a robot playing it. I mean, part of the mechanization and the corporatization of music has been through the development of of things like drum machines, which then had sequencers with that made bass lines and so i i remember towards the end of my years playing music commercially you might say i was playing background music in restaurants on maui um some of the players would have it was basically like a, a um a karaoke you know it would it would play all of the parts except for the guitar part and the and the voice. And so this guitarist could play and sing. And it was as if he or she were accompanied by an entire band. But see, the thing is, those things don't have a soul and they are over perfect because they're made by a machine. They are made by a robot. I don't know if you've heard these symphonies they've made with artificial intelligence trying to create like Uh, the new Beethoven that he might have written if he was still alive. And uh, if you listen to them, I mean, it sounds kind of like Beethoven. And I'm not sure if it's because I know it's an AI that it sounds something w wrong about it. Uh, I don't know if it's a bias or something. But uh, it is interesting that uh, it could be in the future that they managed to to make it not perfect. I know they have uh, some of sometimes when you call customer services and they have a robot voice, they've started to make the robot voice uh, say words like mm uh you know like it's thinking to make it sound more real. But it doesn't uh, doesn't uh, all the planets uh, they have all different frequencies that you can Uh, listen to and uh, and the sun as well. Exactly. I mean, really, there are being tuned into nature is also being tuned into vibrations, just the same as music. Um, nature speaks through vibrations. One concept I didn't know before I met Ramon was that of white noise. In other words, the the sound of 
of the wind in the in the leaves of a tree or the sound of water falling or rain falling you know that's those sounds are are called white noise and they're very pleasing to the ear they're irregular um and they're soothing it's different than the white noise that you might hear from static on a radio which is jarring and Apparently, when you get right down to the shape of the sound waves themselves, some are more uh, gently flowing, and some of them are more sharp points and square, and and those are the more artificial sounds. I've read many books on near-death experiences, and a common thing that people seem to experience when they die and they go to the other side, uh, is that they do hear music. Right, right. Actually, that's kind of... Um, I made an album of songs having to do with death. Um, in, in 2007, both of my parents died on the same day, uh, 500 miles apart, having not seen each other in 42 years. It was quite an extraordinary moment in my life. And so kind of as a prayer flag for them and for other friends and relatives that died within that year, um, I made this, this album called Beyond Living. And um, what I found myself attracted to were these old Christian hymns that talked about how, uh, you know, angels playing harps And, uh, you know, there was also some very funny writing by Samuel Clemens. He said, oh, my God, what would be more boring than to be forever stuck in a in a, a, a netherworld where people were just playing harps continuously? Um, but, uh, but it is interesting that in that particular theology, Uh, disembodied spirits were thought to be making that particular music on that particular instrument. I have to ask, uh, since you were the perfect age during that legendary time, 67 to 1969, I guess is the time frame, a lot of things have been written and spoken about what they, I guess, call these days, like the summer of love or the hippie years but what was it really like uh, being there in in that time well um i i went to san francisco first in 1966 when i was 17 years old to start going to san francisco state college and the haight ashbury at that time was kind of an artist neighborhood. What had happened was the the Beatnik artist neighborhood of North Beach had gotten gentrified and more expensive. And so the artists who were living up in North Beach started moving to this sort of more working class neighborhood that was actually very pretty. It surrounded uh, a, a long strip of park called the Panhandle that came out from Golden Gate Park. So they started moving there, and then they started setting up their their little businesses there. And um, 
it, it became a vibrant community, but it wasn't world known. I loved being there in that, and I uh, I dropped out of school and immediately started joining the the hippie world right then. Um, of course, my mother was absolutely uh, horrified that I did that, and um, so I ha I was taken away from there, and I didn't get back until. 1967, when I was 18 years old. That was the Summer of Love. Now, the Summer of Love resulted from actually a mainstream media blitz about the Haight-Ashbury. The Haight-Ashbury throughout the year 1966 had been only artists living there relatively undiscovered by other people. Um, but in January of 1967, uh, Gentleman's Quarterly put out a, an article, a, a photo article about the Haight-Ashbury. And then other magazines followed suit. And by the summer, everybody all over the U.S. that wanted to see a hippie neighborhood uh, got in their Volkswagen vans, and they drove there. So it was kind of a crowd scene by then. The Haight-Ashbury was full of people, and not all of them were people that you would want to meet. There were a lot of um, gurus of different kinds. There were hard drug dealers. There were teenage runaways. Um, there were all kinds of people taking advantage of each other. It wasn't the you know, peace and love and sharing and art that had been in the year before. So I didn't live in the Haight-Ashbury in 1967. I moved to the houseboats in Sausalito, uh, which at that point was pretty much still a pure artist's community as well. And um, it was super enjoyable. Um, I had a boyfriend I was living with uh, when I first moved to the houseboats, and he went into the city probably to get some marijuana uh, and never came back. He got caught up in a drug raid on one of those apartments in the Haight-Ashbury. So there was a lot of police action going on there, too. And it was sad for me that my boyfriend just disappeared like that. I, you know, for a, a long time, I really didn't know what happened to him. Finally, somebody told me. Um, so the, the hippie life had its, its joys, but it also had its, its downside, which was that everybody was paranoid about being busted for, marijuana and different kinds of psychedelics. And then also there was the whole aspect of the Vietnam War. Uh, that was really part of the background of which, through which we were all living. All of the boys and men who were U.S. citizens could be called up for the draft at any time. And if they were not willing to be drafted, uh, they could go to jail. Um, they could go to prison. So uh, some of them ran away to other countries. Uh, 
some of them went underground. Some of them did weird kinds of theater when they went to their draft, uh, you know, inductions so that they would be disqualified. Um, there was a lot of fear. And because of all of that fear around both of those things, um, there was not a lot of stability. There weren't people getting married and having children and buying houses. It was more kind of uh, a, a community of, of travelers of, I don't know when I'll see you again. Like, like uh, that Bob Dylan song, you know, when, when the rooster crows at the break of dawn, wake, look out your window and I'll be gone. You're the reason I'm traveling on, but don't think twice. It's all right. You know, it was like, that was kind of how a lot of relationships were at that point. They just weren't, there wasn't a, a lot of commitment, not because the guys weren't capable of love, but because they were fearing for their lives and they didn't know what was going to happen to them next. So that was part of the hippie world too. San Francisco is famous for its uh, progressive stance on on homosexuality, but was it like that back then, or, or was that something that came later? Well, yeah, you know, I mean, the thing was when we we started taking psychedelics and we began examining the the rules of adult conduct with which we had been raised, and we said, well. Do we really have to do things this way or can we do it another way? And so people began to experiment with all kinds of different sexual uh, behaviors to see whether they liked it or how they felt or, you know, was it okay or was it not? Um, so there was a lot of different kinds of things going on. Um, one of the famous Uh, theater groups that was happening in the Haight-Ashbury in those years was called the Coquettes. And the Coquettes were mainly hippie drag queens, guys dressed up as women, but there were also women that were part of it. And there were also some men who were not homosexual. And they had, they made these wonderful stage performances with amazing costumes and amazing makeup and they they only were around for like three or four or five years um my friend Fayette Hauser was one of the original coquettes and she made an amazing book that was just called the coquettes it came out I think a year or two ago and and uh the, the pictures are wonderful and it gives you an idea of how the experimenting was going in in the Haight-Ashbury and in the Bay Area in those days. People were saying, well, you know, why, why should we have to do it this way? Why can't we do it that way? If we're going to be drag queens, why can't we also have beards? And a lot of them had beards and put glitter on them. So it was playful. It was wonderful. Did you ever happen to bump into Terence McKenna and, and that crowd? Well, actually, I did meet Terence McKenna, but not during those days. Um, he and um, Tom Robbins did a writing workshop on Maui in the 1990s, which I attended. 
it, they both had wonderful things to say. And um, I particularly love Terence McKenna's talk on the I Ching and um, that how it was like a sand dune. It was a, it was a completely random object that could measure the vibrations that were coming from your mind and your spirit and tell you what was in your future based on the vibrations that you were emitting now. I have a picture of myself in a psychedelic shirt standing at the corner of Haight-Ashbury. And I, I, when I posted it online, I, I wrote, uh, I'm, I've arrived 50 years too late. Oh. <laughs> but I, I was uh, happy, though, because when I, I was only there for an hour or so, you know, just because I had to. But uh, during that time, I, I did bump into two people who I, I saw on the street that they bought some LSD and they ate it. And then uh, I, I walked up to them because they seemed pretty young. And I walked up to them and, and said, uh, there's a park over there. I suggest you go there <laughs> because uh, uh, that street didn't seem like a nice street to trip on. Uh, but uh, so I at least could have a little miniature summer of love, even though it lasted only about 10 minutes. As Timothy Leary said, set and setting were very important to the ingestion of psychedelics. You know, in other words, you don't want to be someplace where there's chaos uh, and ugliness going on. You want to be someplace that's calm and safe and beautiful so that you can feel like you can go anywhere that you want to go in your spirit. And... Um, well, I saw I saw Timothy Leary speak uh, at the University of Michigan when I was quite young. Uh, I attended his famous "Turn On, Tune In" dropout speech, and and then I saw another performance that he did on Maui many years later, which he called the "Stand Up Philosopher" uh, performance. He was being like a stand-up comedian, but he was really talking about his philosophy. And uh, he was an interesting guy, for sure. Uh, really an interesting mind. Who would you recommend read uh, this book, Being of the Sun? Who, who do you think would, would enjoy it? I would say anybody who really is looking for a kind of freedom in a world where it isn't really being offered all the time. If you want to get an idea of, about different places that you can go in your mind uh, in relation to your life and into nature and yourself, here it is. And, um, you know, when I illustrated it, all the people or almost all the people are naked. Um, Part of that was because I was raised in a house. I was raised by a mother who was a classically trained artist and drew naked people and sculpted naked people and, and walked around naked herself. So I, I didn't feel, when I went to the hippie commune, it didn't feel weird that people were walking around naked. Um, and also um, it was just 
it was very freeing to not have clothes as an indicator of your status um, in the community. But now I look at it and I see that um, it also tells you that 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 is an option. Uh, you know, as long as you're not freezing, uh, you can be there with your body. You don't have to cover it up. Um, one of the things that I read in the years since I wrote Living on the Earth and Being of the Sun was a book called Children of the Sun by Gordon Kennedy. And in it, he describes these 19th century and very early 20th century people who were really the forerunners of the hippie movement. They were nudists. They were vegans. Um, they breastfed their babies. They wore natural fiber clothes when they wore clothes. They lived communally. Uh, these movements were happening in Europe uh, long before they were happening in the United States. And th who brought it to the United States were actually people that were draft dodgers from Germany before World War I. Then they came and they hid out in the United States and they were living their total back-to-the-land life notably one named Bill Pester, who lived in Takwitz Canyon near Palm Springs, California. And so uh, there were people of my parents' generation who were attracted to them and began that kind of lifestyle. Uh, some of the more famous ones were Gypsy Boots, uh, who was a television personality in the 1950s and 1960s. Um, and another one was Eden Abes, who wrote the words to Nature Boy. Nature Boy was actually uh, an old Yiddish waltz, Schweig mein Herz, of Be Still My Heart, right? But he made it this other song about what it's like to be a, a nature boy uh, in California. And uh, it, so those people were really sort of the parents of the whole hippie movement, uh, first they began to teach their way of, of uh, eating and their way of being in nature to the early surfers and then eventually the early hippies. Um, so, yeah, we're actually, we're part of a very old tradition Um even before them, when you come all the way back to the Middle Ages, there's a, there was a commune that was established in what became known as the Bohemian River Valley. It was a valley that had been settled in by a Celtic tribe called the Boii. But this was like now in the 1300s, and there was um, this chancellor of the university in Prague, and what they taught in universities in those days was mostly how to be a Catholic priest. And he looked at the teachings of Jesus, and he looked at 
the world as it was then, which was feudalism, you know, essentially there were very rich people who had big castles and there were everybody else who were basically slaves. They they were serfs. They were tied to the land. They belonged to the land. If the land was sold, they went with it. Um, so he looked at that and he said, this is exactly contrary to the teachings of Jesus. If we were going to going to live according to the teachings of Jesus, we would all come together. We would share everything we had. We would share all the work. We would take care of each other. And so he moved to the village of Tabor in the Bohemian River Valley, and he put the word out that that was what he wanted to do. And there were people that came and joined in this experimental um village living without lords of and you know earls and barons and stuff they were it was just everybody was in it together in other words they were basically doing a democratic socialist community and um what happened was the church responded violently and sent uh knights to come and massacre everybody which they did but the story of the Bohemian Commune lived on. And when things changed in the art world, like artists for thousands of years served the rich. You know, if you were a pharaoh or if you were a king, you would have someone who would be painting portraits of you and, and, and your family. Or painting beautiful things to go on the walls of your, your house or your palace. Um, but artists didn't work for themselves. They weren't independent entrepreneurs. Um, but in the 19th century, they began to do this. They began to congregate in cities and they began to make art and sell it. And when that happened, they began living communally in order to live more cheaply and also to enjoy each other's company. And so they became known as Bohemians because this recalled that democratic socialist community in the 1300s, that is 600 years before, um, when people were living and sharing in that particular way. So, this is another root of the whole hippie life. And you know now that um, there is a, a global eco-village network. In other words, there are communities that are based on the old hippie communities, but they're better because they have, you know, better sustainable technology and they have uh, better organization for the people there. So, it's, it's kind of like wherever there is hierarchy, there is people who will walk away from it and make something else. And this is still happening now, and it was happening a very long time ago. Cool. And if people want to, to buy this book or your other books, where can they find them? They can always find them on my online store, which is indigowithstars.com, I N. D-I-G-O-W-I-T-H-S-T-A-R-S 
www.indigoblossomsandgold.com. Indigo with Stars is my online store. AliciaBayLaurel.com is my blog. And um, so there's there's a lot of uh, writing and background about all of that uh, on my website. Um, but the, the books and also my musical recordings and my, uh, my art, there's a lot of stuff in the online store. And um, so I would love it if some of your listeners would come <laughs> take a look at my stuff. I thought we were going to finish with uh, a song uh, from uh, Being of the Sun, the Autumn Equinox chant. Can you talk a bit about that? Yes. Um, one of the ways in which Ramon and I celebrated the, the seasons of the year, the times of the day, and the phases of the moon were with different little chants. And um, so uh, we composed chants for the two equinoxes and the two solstices. And so this one uh, is the one that is for the equinox. And I mostly wrote the words and he mostly composed the melodies because the melodies were based on different modes or scales that he assigned to different times of the year. Cool. Thank you a lot for taking the time to be on the podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to meet you and hear about your life too. Freedom is in the mind. Once again the love is equal to the light On the open side of the sun We have gathered to make one For the darkness approaches Thank you for the bounty of the Once again, I know.